0: We've just sang, I will hold fast to the sure and steady anchor. We've also sang, he will hold me fast. Well, in Romans 8, we see how those two both apply, how we can sing both of those songs uh, from our hearts. So would you open up to Romans 8? We've been in Romans 3. We've been in Romans 6 in our prayer time. Romans 8 is where we're going to be spending most of our time here Um, as we hear from God's Word. This is one of the most comforting chapters in all of Scripture. If you are weary this morning, if you are beaten down on the brink of despair, if you're in chronic pain or discomfort, if you're barely here by the skin of your teeth, hear these comforting words from Romans chapter 8. But before I read, let me pray for us. O oh, Spirit of God, would you come and enlighten our hearts to hear your word? Would you grow us in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ? Would you comfort us now? In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So I'm going to spend most of our time in verses 12 to 17, but for context, since we're just jumping in here for for one week, I wanted to start in verse 1. So let me read verses 1 to 17, Romans chapter 8. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Amen. This is God's word. Think for a moment what the experience is like for you when you rewatch a movie. movie maybe you've seen a bunch of times or maybe just one time, and you're sitting there and you're encountering the story. In every good movie, there's kind of one big problem to be solved. There's subplots, of course, but there's kind of one big problem, and there's usually at least just one protagonist. Sometimes you've got companions, but there comes a point in every movie where all all hope seems lost. The protagonist is backed into a corner. You have no idea how he's going to get out, unless you've seen the movie, of course. It's kind of like, I was, I was thinking about just Back to the Future, one of my favorite movies, and maybe this will ruin it for you, but it's 40 years old, so you should have seen it by now. Um, Marty McFly is cornered by Biff on the top of this building. There's nowhere to go. What's going to happen? But there's got to be a Back to the Future 2 and 3, so somehow he's got to get out of this. And if you see the movie, you, you, you may be emotionally engaged at the time, but you know how he gets out. Kind of looks over the corner, sees the flying DeLorean below, and just steps off. And he gets out, and he flies away to freedom. So it is, and like every good movie, when you know the outcome, you know everything's going to be okay, and you're comforted. Well, a few years ago, one of my pastors, he was telling about an experience he had on an airplane. And by God's providence, he was seated next to a priest in the Roman Catholic Church. So he had this burning question that he just really wanted clarity on and he said given the sacramental system in the Catholic church how can somebody ever be really sure that they're going to heaven and this this man's response was very simple you can't you can't well our question today is is that true assurance of faith assurance of salvation can you have it should we have it? How do you get it? Can you lose it? Not going to be able to address every single question there is with assurance of faith, but hopefully, my, ho- my hope is to shed light on first that assurance of faith, biblically speaking, is possible. And that God really wants us to have assurance of faith. He wants us to have that comfort and that confidence in knowing Christ. It's entirely possible, I want to say at the outset, it's entirely possible for someone to be a true Christian, have true belief, and yet have a very weak assurance of it, constantly drawn to despair and discouragement. And yet the startling reality is that the reverse is also true. It's entirely possible for someone to think that they are a Christian and yet not have true fruit-bearing faith but instead they're presuming upon the, a misconception of God's grace. So how do you know? Well, I want to do three big headings here in this sermon. It's in your outline. You'll see them come on the screen. The first is this, as I want to show in Scripture very briefly that assurance of faith is possible. The second thing is we'll spend most of our time kind of unpacking verses really 14 to 17 Uh, explaining how the Holy Spirit bears witness to us, giving us confidence in Christ. And then the third thing we'll do is we'll ask the question, so what do we do about it? So let me jump into the first point. You'll see some scriptures up there. I put them up there because I just want to read them very quickly, um, just to establish the biblical case here that this language is all over scripture, that you may know that you believe John wrote in his gospel, he said, I've written my gospel so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That's John 20, verses 30 to 31. And later he writes in his first letter, in 1 John 5, 13, he says, I write these things to you who believe that you may know that you have eternal life. So these are apparently are people that truly believe, but they're struggling. They're struggling with their assurance of their belief. He has more to say about this, and we'll come back to it. It's a verse that we've already covered recently. But um, in Hebrews 6, you've got uh, verses 11 and 12. Listen to this language. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have full assurance of hope. Full Not partial, full, until the end. That you may not not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Later in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19, he says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, 21, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near." With a true heart and full assurance of faith. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. So, the writer of Hebrews is grounding this assurance of faith in the faithfulness of God and in the work of Christ. That's why Paul can say in Colossians 2 he wants their hearts to be encouraged, being knit together in love. To reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery. So, that's just a taste of the biblical evidence that God wants us to enjoy the riches of salvation. He wants to enjoy the riches of the hope that we have with great confidence. So, why? Well, if you have assurance of saving faith in Jesus Christ, it changes everything. No longer are you walking around kind of wondering if the scales are going to be tipped in your favor or not. No longer are you preoccupied with trying to prove yourself to God and to others. When you struggle with sin, you're not drawn to despair, but you're drawn to Christ. When trials come in all shapes and sizes, you may get knocked around, but as we were just saying, you have a ballast Of assurance. Your foundation and your footing remain firm. And when you come to the end of your life, there's no fear. It's joyful expectation for your faith to be made sight. So if you have assurance of faith, then you have true peace. So maybe you're thinking, well, that sounds nice. How do I get that? Well, I want to point us just to a verse Romans 8 6 we just read it in the in the scripture reading to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace and he unpacks that so our second major heading this morning is assurance of faith is spirit driven setting our mind on the spirit Um, we're going to zoom in on verses 14 to 17. Uh, Paul's concern here is how the Spirit of God gives us confidence in Christ by doing what? By bearing witness that we belong to Christ. There's four verses outlining four ways the Spirit bears witness to us, bolstering our assurance in Christ. So how? The first one is this, by leading us. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God verse 14. Well, who are the sons of God? The sons of God are true believers, been adopted into the family of Christ. Sons and daughters, children that he has called by name. The sons of God are described in verse 14 as those who are being led by the Spirit of God. Well, you say, led to do what? If you look back one verse, we'll get the answer. Now maybe you've heard some people say, well, I feel led by the Spirit to do this or that. Um, and kind of depending on what it is, that, there may be some authenticity to that prompting or, or maybe not. Um, how do we want to know? How do we know what the will of God is? How do we know kind of what, what's in the realm of possibility for the Spirit to be leading us to do? We look at God's Word. Uh, His will is expressed for us in many ways. 1 Thessalonians 4.3 is just one example. He says, for this is the will of God, your sanctification. So, led by the Spirit of God to do what? Verse 13 says, to put to death the deeds of the body, that we may live. R.C. Sproul says, where the Spirit guides his people is on the path of righteousness to holiness. And here we see evidence of that. But it's not by our own strength. It's not by our own resolve. Notice the careful phrasing here, led by the spirit of God. If you think about a nail gun, you pull the trigger, but let's be honest, who's doing the real work? The power tool is. The, the, the power in comparison here with the, the nail gun And your minimal effort of pulling the trigger um, is is kind of like what what Paul says in Philippians 2.13. He says, For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Are you putting to death the deeds of the body? Yes. But it's God's work in and through you. It's for his good pleasure. And guess what? It's for our good pleasure too. Uh, There's great joy and delight in this. It's not burdensome. It's not wearisome. And so the question for us is, do we see evidence of that? Do you see evidence of the Spirit's leading in your life to put to death the deeds of the flesh and to cultivate fruit of the Spirit? Do you see from Galatians 5, love, joy, peace, peace, You see growing patience? Do you see goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self control in your life? I don't think any of us could say that we see that perfectly. But do you see a growth? Do you see that growing desire for the things of God, the things of the Spirit, and at the same time to put to death the deeds of the flesh? You know, the things of the Spirit are opposed to the desires of the flesh. Like the dead have no interest in oxygen, the flesh have no desire whatsoever towards the things of God. So do you see any evidence of that? Well, that bolsters our assurance in Christ. You know, there may be seasons of rebellion, there may be seasons of drought, but at the end of the day, we're being directed towards the righteousness of God, conformed to the image of Christ, And therefore are being led by the Spirit of God as sons and daughters of God. Well, the second way that the Spirit bears witness to us is by dwelling in us. It's the Spirit of God who enlivens us and enables us to pray. We don't really know the language or the posture of prayer apart from the Spirit's help. We can address God as Father like Jesus taught us to pray but even more than that is this whole idea of the spirit of adoption that frees us from fleshly bondage to family freedom we are god's children and god will not disown his children verse 15 for you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry abba father It's not only the privilege of being able to call upon God as the hearer of our prayers, but it's this privilege of being able to run into his arms as a child does to their father. When the Spirit of God comes to dwell in us, the Father adopts us as his own. And John 1:12 says, He gives us the right, the privilege to become children of God. You know, Christ as the Son of God, is our, our brother, and we're entitled to all the benefits of his inheritance as fellow heirs with Christ, as we see later on in this text. So by living us, living in us, the Holy Spirit renews our spirits. He changes our hearts. He illuminates our minds, and that changes our whole posture towards God. We don't see him as a dictator. We see him as a loving father. And by the Spirit's renewal, And by his prompting, we cry out to him in prayer, both in confidence and in desperation. Romans 5.5 reminds us that the hope that we have has real traction because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So the question for us is, are you inclined to pray? Are you inclined to call out to God? You don't have to have all the right words. You don't have to be perfect about what you say, when you say, and how you say it. But you have any heart level posture of crying out to God as your Abba, Father. Well, this gives us assurance because false believers have no desire to do that. And true believers have the Spirit of God which enables us to cry out to Him. There's a connection at the deepest level. This connection leads us to verse 16. So how does the Spirit of God bear witness to us? Well, this, this verse is pretty explicit. By speaking to us. Verse 16, I think, is really profound. This gives me great comfort, and really this was the, the verse that I came across It really made me want to explore this and preach this text. But I wanna be careful. I wanna be careful not to say too much and not to say too little about what it means that the Spirit of God speaks to us. You know, there's a temptation to kind of tread too deeply into the waters of mysticism here, isn't there? Thinking that maybe the Spirit of God has given us unique words, that he's given us something highly specific in our lives, and this can be dangerous. We need to judge every thought by the prompting, every thought or prompting by the constraints of Scripture, where God has spoken clearly but I don't want to squeeze all the mystery out of this either this is a spiritual conversation the spirit himself which is really cool by the way is direct it's not through a messenger the spirit himself speaks to our spirit and what does he do he convinces us that we're children of God when Paul says our spirit, what he's talking about is our inner being, our very self. It's an all-encompassing term of who you are. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit, to our very self. And on one hand, the essence of this interaction, there's actually no like audible words here that are being spoken. Have you ever sat with somebody in a time of grief? where all you're doing is sitting and being with that person. Maybe maybe the words that are spoken are very minimal, but we can all attest to that there's actually real communication happening there. There's comfort, there's love, there's companionship. Though words are minimal, you're saying, I am here with you. It's kind of like that. When the Spirit speaks to our hearts, He says, I am here with you. This is called the internal testimony of the Holy Spirit. It's a renewal of our hearts. It's an illumination, a transformation. Ephesians says it's it's an enlightening of the eyes of our hearts. It's nothing short of regeneration, given new hearts, and then an ongoing comfort to our hearts. The Spirit working in us is the only way we're actually persuaded to believe that Scripture is true. It's the only way that we can grasp the promises of God for ourselves. And the Spirit's work is the only way we're actually able to believe in Christ and then profess faith in Him. This is clear in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 3. No one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has done a work in you and is leading you to that profession of true faith. And that's because the Spirit takes the intellectual truth about Christ and He irreversibly drives it home to our hearts. The same confidence of knowing God as our Father gives us assurance that the benefits of being His children are truly and really given to us. And we are His. It's so cool. Think about how kids know their parents' voices. Even just last week I was picking up Daniel from discipleship class and I kind of like show up at the door and the leaders are, are calling him to come to the door and he's still playing around. But when I say, Daniel, he hears it and he turns and he runs to give me a hug. Well, Jesus says in John 10, my sheep hear my voice. I know them. And they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. Because my sheep hear my voice. And I'm a sufficient savior. So what's the primary way that God's spirit speaks? Through his word. It's through his word that the spirit speaks. The spirit's job is to take God's word and to put it in our hearts When Paul says that the Spirit bears witness, he's not saying that this completely bypasses the mind, or he's not saying that the Spirit is communicating anything that he hasn't already communicated in his word. Again, I found a quote from R.C. Sproul really helpful. He says, when the Spirit communicates to God's people, he communicates to them by the word, with the word, through the word, and never against the word. So if we're asking the Spirit to speak without Scripture, what we're asking Him to do is His job without the primary tool that He uses. It's like asking a a carpenter to build a house without wood or concrete or whatever you're using to build the, the very structure of the house. And so if we want to hear the voice of God, then we should go where it's most clearly found, and that's in God speaking and acting in the words of Scripture. The fourth way the Spirit bears witness to us is verse 17 by giving us himself by giving us himself he's already testified to us but it's more than that he gives himself to us verse 17 says if we're children then we're heirs heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him Children of God are heirs with Christ. What does it mean to be an heir? An heir has an inheritance coming from their parents. So this means if we're children of God, then we have an inheritance coming from our Heavenly Father. But this is far greater than any sort of conception we can have of the presence of joys in heaven or even the absence of sorrow in heaven The greater reality here is that God himself is the inheritance of the saints. But instead of making us wait, he gives us his spirit now as a down payment of that inheritance to come. Ephesians 1, 13 and 14 says this, In him, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and you believed in him, what happened? You are sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Sealed as a guarantee. As a spirit-indwelt fellow heir with Christ, God will never write you out of his will. Your inheritance is guaranteed. Why? Why? Because he's given you a down payment and giving you himself. Let it be our soul's reminder that God will never leave us or forsake us. So if assurance of faith is possible, if assurance of faith is spirit-driven, then that begs the question, well, what am I supposed to do about it? And when the Bible talks about how you live with a healthy assurance that you are in the faith which is to say that you truly believe, God presents this as an active experience. And so the third major heading this morning is that assurance of faith is active. But it's a, a better way to think about it is not to say that it is primarily talking about our activity, but instead think about it as the Spirit's activity in and through us. And where are you on the spectrum of assurance of faith? Maybe you're experiencing great confidence in Christ, daily enjoying Him. Praise God for that. That's awesome. Maybe you're in a season of doubt. You're not really sure how to get out of it. Maybe doubt is a part of your regular daily experience. Or maybe you're not really sure what you believe, you're not really sure where you stand. Well assurance of faith is understanding let's be clear about this. It's understanding that it is not our faith that saves us. It is not our faith that saves us, nor is it is assurance of faith the same thing as faith. These are helpful distinctions to make. The truth is is that it is the object of our faith, Jesus Christ, our Savior. That saves us. And God works this through the vehicle of faith when we believe in Christ our Savior. But what else is clear about faith in Scripture? Faith comes to us totally as a gift from God by the work of His Holy Spirit. And so, on one hand, you can think about it like this. Assurance of faith is actually not up to you. It has everything to do with Christ. You know, God guarantees His own promises. He's made covenant promises to all His children, and His promises are, are true. So, at the deepest level, I think it's true that we could say a true believer can never have absolutely zero assurance of faith. Why? Because the Spirit Himself bears witness to your soul at the deepest level and convinces you that you are a son or daughter of the Most High. So, it's not really up to you to muster up enough assurance of faith that stands the test at the end. Um, Yet, there is a very active element to this. An active element of growing in what I'll call in our everyday experience of assurance that we are sons and daughters of God. If faith is a gift, think about it like this. If you've received a gift, let's take the example that Emily and I give Ellie a new dollhouse. Her ears just perked up. (laughs) Let's say we give her a new dollhouse. Well, on one hand, because we're the ones giving her the gift unilaterally, there's really no way she can reject that gift. We give her the gift, and it is hers. It really is hers. She owns it by nature of the relationship between us, her parents giving her that gift. But what we can d- draw distinctions between is the fact that there can be three different experiences of that gift. The first would be to receive that gift, to go upstairs to her room, open the closet, throw the box in, close the door, and never look at it again. Does she have it? Yeah, she has the gift. But... Over time, she may start to wonder, hmm, I wonder if that gift is still there. I wonder if that dollhouse is still in my closet. So the second way she could experience it is just by every now and then kind of confirming that. You know, she starts to wonder about that. She opens up the door, and she kind of peeks in. She's like, okay, it's still there. All right, cool, great. And then she goes along her merry way. But the third way, which I think is what the Bible is talking about, how we stir up the enjoyment of the gift of faith. The third way is she could run upstairs slap that thing down in the middle of her floor, the middle of her room so she sees it every time she goes in, every time she comes out, every time she wakes up and lays down every time she's walking across the floor she almost trips over it and so she's seeing this time and time again and she's taking the time to enjoy it she'll never question whether or not she has the gift you know in all three of those scenarios, the gift could really be said that Ellie has the dollhouse. And yet, it's that third scenario where she's enjoying it all the more. And she'll tend to question it very, very little. So what are you to do? Ephesians 2.8, that's where I got the, 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 the truth that faith is a gift from God. How do you stir up the enjoyment of this gift? How do you grow in your assurance of the gift of faith? Well, i want to suggest four things. The first is this, to look to Christ. That's the first thing, look to Christ. The most basic and foundational response that you could have to this passage, no matter where you are on the spectrum of assurance of faith, is to look to Christ. Nobody who looks to Christ for salvation finds Jesus hiding from their sight. Nobody who begs for Christ doesn't get him. Nobody who clings to Christ looks up to see him kind of shirking you off. Look to Christ. We sang about it. Look to Christ and see the surety of his perfect, sinless body nailed to a cross to pay for your sins. Look to Christ and see the empty tomb of his resurrection and see that death and hell are off the table for all who trust in him and see him seated at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty, as your advocate, what better witness could you possibly have? So look to Christ. Secondly, read his word. If you're longing to hear the voice of God speak, to speak comfort to your soul, then go where it is most reliably and most clearly found. And that's in the pages of Scripture. Hebrews 4.12, maybe you're, you're familiar with this verse. 4.12, the book of Hebrews says, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. This is kind of like rewatching that movie, but having the script in your hand. Read his word. Thirdly, keep his commandments. We're right in the middle of a sermon series on the Ten Commandments. And that's prompted from this very verse in 1 John 2, 3. So the Ten Commandments series is kind of a sub-series of 1 John where he says this. He deals with the very question we're talking about today. He says, how are you going to have assurance of your faith? He says this, By this we know that we have come to know Him if we keep His commandments. By this we know that we have come to know Him if we keep His commandments. So notice what it doesn't say. It doesn't say by this we come to know God by keeping His commandments. It says by this we know That we have come to know God if we keep his commandments. So keeping his commandments here is not a cause of our salvation. It's not a cause of faith. It is the evidence that God has already done the work of salvation in us. But over time, we find that his commandments are good. Over time, we find a, a true love for God stirred up all the more. So seeking to love God by keeping his commandments will grow your assurance that you have truly come to know him. This is what Peter says when he says, make your calling and election sure. It can be a confusing verse at times, but that's what he means. He says, live it out. Live out your calling and your election, and you can be sure that you have it. All right, the last uh, kind of application point for us this morning is this. Love Christ's church. Love his church. God loves to use his church to build up his people. And the church is primarily a people, not a building, but he builds up his people. The church is the primary environment which the Spirit works and acts You know, it's rare that someone would come to faith outside of at least some sort of connection to the local church. And it's even more rare that someone would be built up to maturity without a vibrant communal commitment to life in a local church. Of course, God sometimes chooses to do special works of grace in unexpected ways, but these are the exceptions. So if you want to grow in your assurance of faith... Commit to your local church. Not in a marginal way. Jump in head first into the community of the Spirit so that your own faith will be built up to maturity and confidence. One of the specific ways that the church, that life in a church can help us in this is that God has ordained tangible, visible signs. He's ordained them in baptism and in the Lord's Supper. Because he knows at times our faith will be weak. And we need the sign to remind us of his covenant faithfulness. But these signs are meant to be presented to us in the context of the local church. So as you think through those four applications right there, I just want to explicitly state that this is not moralism. It is not legalism. It is not any sort of works-based faith system. What this is, is simply taking God at his word that he will meet you in the very ways he's promised to do so. Maybe you've heard people say, you know, stay out of harm's way. Well, I think one of our applications from here would be put yourself in the spirit's way. Go where he said he'll speak to you. Go where he said he'll build you up. It's by looking to Christ. It's by reading his word, by keeping his commandments out of a sincere love for God, by loving his church and being active in it. And I think if you commit to these things, I think in a year, two years from now, you can look back and see real tangible growth in your confidence in Christ. You know, this is why that we just sang both of those songs. I will hold fast to the sure and steady anchor. But when we stand before God, we will see that we only ever did that because he was holding fast to us. So let us fix our eyes on Jesus, Hebrews 12 says. The author and the perfecter of our faith. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor your own self, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God In Christ Jesus, our Lord. Last thing I want to read is is really just a blessing and a prayer. This could be your prayer. Romans 15, 13. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing. So that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. Let's pray together. O God of hope, would you fill us with all joy and peace in believing that by the power of the Holy Spirit that we would abound in hope. Lord, meet each and every one of us in our particular needs and bear witness to our very souls the sufficiency of Christ of the guarantee of your promises that we have been adopted as your sons and your daughters. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.